This is the Water Cooler Podcast number 47, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. Welcome, my name's Nick Cater. I'm Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. I can't actually remember when I first came across Spiked Online, but I do remember when I first met its editor, Brendan O'Neill. We'd arranged to catch up at St Pancras Station, of all things, and we shared a Guinness while I persuaded him that it would be great if he could write for The Australian. Brendan's joining us from Lockdown London today. Brendan, welcome back to Watercooler. Always a pleasure to talk to you. This has been, I think, one of the one of the few heartening things to come out of this year of rolling crises, and we'll talk about those in a minute, is, is this great conversation that's going on now all around the world. You, you've got podcasts going, podcasts in the States, which we both listen to, and we're toing and froing, and you join us, and we join you. I don't want to overblow this, but it's a bit like Vienna in the start of the 20th century, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, you know, can you imagine if we were going through this COVID crisis and this man-made craziness in a time before the kind of technology we have today, it would have been so much worse. I think the upside of, well, the one upside of the COVID hysteria, as I see it, is that we are able to connect, we're able to have these conversations, we're able to be dissenting across borders, even, even if we're not allowed to physically cross some borders. So I think the the ability to have these kinds of conversations is probably something that's helping a lot of people get through these fairly dark months. Yeah, which which I think opens a question in my mind. If we hadn't had the technology, would we have persisted with this lockdown so long? You know, would all those public servants and commentariat who make these decisions, would they have been happy to sit at home without this connection? And, yeah, I mean that that is a good question, and one of the thing I one of the things I've been thinking about is the the class differential in terms of the impact of the lockdown, because you know the elites can carry on working from home, and for lots of them it was a really interesting little social experiment. You know they they live in nice houses, they probably have gardens, um, they can carry on doing their jobs, they can get their food delivered by the precariat who who deliver food for a living and get badly paid for doing. So the supermarket shelves of their local organic stores were still being stocked by badly paid workers who still had to go to work. So for the elites, it was probably an interesting experiment. But for many other people, the lockdown has been a disaster. I mean, here in the UK and in the US, and I'm sure it's the same in Australia, um, the job losses are going to be absolutely huge. Britain is heading for the worst recession in history. And um, vast numbers of people are now claiming universal income, which is the very basic welfare benefit that people need simply to survive. So um, for a huge number of people, it's been nothing but pain. They've lost the ability to plan their futures. They've lost their ability to make a living in many cases. So I think a lot of people are feeling exhausted with the lockdown and are pushing back against it, but are not entirely clear how to do that because, of course, anyone who questions the lockdown is immediately written off as a COVID conspiracy theorist or someone who wants old people to die. So it's a difficult thing to dissent on, but it's essential that people do. Mm. Well, I think the, the, the big thing that surprised me out of this this year was the readiness with which people became docile and just accepted this authoritarian style of government and style of policing, which scared the bejesus out of me. I'm sure you too. Um, and the second 
big surprise is how difficult it is for anybody to protest against it. I mean, so you've had anti-lockdown protests in London. Um, in Victoria, when people tried that, there was the most heavy-handed policing. They, they couldn't get off the, the grass, you know. Um, and basically, no, no protests. It is, people are feeling frustrated, aren't they? They, they? they would like something different to be happening, and they can't actually control it. Yeah, people are feeling incredibly frustrated and they feel a real lack lack of control over their own lives. And I think that's not a feeling... I mean, people often feel that their own lives are not their own to determine, but that now that this year they felt that in a very real way, that they don't have basic control over whether they can leave the house, whether they will have a job in a few months' time, whether they can save money for their daughter's education or their son's wedding, all those things that people think about and plan and do has been torn away from them and they've been plunged into this period of almost dystopian uncertainty. So people definitely feel like that. I agree with you. One of the things that terrified me at the very start of the lockdown was the levels of compliance. And I think it's down to the fact that for the past three decades or so, we've had relentless narratives of fear. I mean, the politics of fear has become pretty much the only game in town in many cases, you know, whether it was uh, the terrorism issue, which was often blown out of proportion. And now, ironically, when terrorism is a serious problem in Western Europe, it's underplayed and no one wants to talk about it. Um, of course, there was the climate change politics of fear, um, stranger danger, all these things over the past three decades, I think, have had a very negative impact on people's sense of confidence and on communities' sense of confidence, people's belief that they can negotiate risk, negotiate uncertainty, carry on living freely, even in a world that has dangers around. I think people have lost the ability to do that. So when the virus came and the media class in particular engaged in an extraordinary campaign of fear, I think it, it was very successful very early on. And the, the problem that the British government had was trying to break the stranglehold of fear over people. So three or four months into the lockdown, the government decided it was time to ease it. But opinion polls showed that people were still reluctant to go outside, still reluctant to go back to work. And the government really struggled to get people's confidence back. But that's because they had spent three months terrorizing the public. And when you terrorize the public, it has consequences. But I think now, as we come to the end of the year, I think we are potentially reaching a situation where for very practical reasons, people just feel exhausted with, with the lockdown because they're, they're wondering how they're gonna make ends meet, whether they're gonna have a job, whether that becomes a big political pushback, I think that is up for question, but I do sense people tiring now of this constant in and out of lockdown, which we have. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that makes it problematic is that there's little political leadership in opposition to this. You know, there's one strategy. It's a completely novel strategy, by the way, never been tried before on this scale or for this length of time for any virus. Um, you know, the, evidence, the empirical evidence just isn't there because we're conducting an experiment in real time, but this is where we're going. Uh, and it's hard to see any opposition stand out against it, isn't it? I mean, how's Labour doing? What's Labour arguing? Heavier lockdown or less lockdown? 
no, Labour in the UK wants more lockdowns. And they're even making Boris Johnson look um, liberal in comparison. Boris Johnson has turned out to be the most authoritarian prime minister in living memory. Now, that's not entirely his fault because we're in a very strange moment, but that's what he has turned out to be. And Labour, of course, want him to go even further. So at the moment, the Labour Party here in the UK is calling for another national lockdown, which would be absolutely devastating. And in fact, in Wales, where Labour is um, very influential in the, in the Welsh Assembly, um, Wales currently has a lockdown which can only be described as psychotic. It's gone into a 17-day national lockdown. All non-essential businesses are shut down, pubs, restaurants, gyms. People can't travel out of the country or into the country or even leave their local uh, town. Um, and we've even had the situation where in supermarkets, because they are still allowing people to buy food, in supermarkets, they've taped up non-essential items. So if you go into a supermarket in, in Wales, you will see that all the books are, have been hidden away and, and covered in tape. Clothing has been hidden away and covered in tape. Birthday cards. You know, the Welsh government has decreed in its infinite wisdom that books are not essential, birthday cards are not essential, flowers are not essential. And the Wales situation has really brought home to me what a terrifying moment we're living through because we now live under a technocracy, a bureaucracy, which assumes that it has the right to tell us what is essential in our lives. And what it's basically saying is that all you really need is food and water and protection from disease. And if you have that, you should be happy. But of course, as philosophers down the centuries know, people need far more than that in order to have a good life. And when we have governments telling us you don't need books, you don't need a birthday card for your grandmother who's turning 100, you don't need to buy flowers to put in your living room, then we've really reached a dystopian situation. We have, and I'm always trying to check my language because it sounds like we're going over the top, but when you look at the objective facts of what's happening on the ground, we may be understating it, I think. But it's interesting, that book idea, there was a variation of that in New Zealand where the New Zealand government, uh, Jacinta with the big smile and the baby, decided at one point that uh, uh, fiction was non-essential. Non-fiction you could buy... But I thought at a time like this, you're just crying out for a bit of fiction, aren't you? <laughs> but Absolutely. But it's like, like, like um, the, you know, I think New Zealand, New Zealand is a good example of um, a lot of the problems we face at the moment, because you were saying there earlier that it's very difficult to push back against this and it's almost impossible to protest against it. I mean, there have been protests in the UK, but they've been very heavily fined. And of course, we've had that complete disparity. I know you've had this in Australia too, where Black Lives Matter protests went ahead pretty much unmolested. The authorities in some cases stood back. Some police officers even took the knee in London in front of Black Lives Matter protesters, let them tear down statues, all that kind of stuff. But as soon as there are um, protests against the lockdown, the police go in with truncheons raised and shields raised, and there's been lots of street fighting. So we've had that real um, political police, policing, effectively, where if you have the wrong views, you're not allowed to protest in public. But it, in relation to New Zealand um, and, and the landslide victory for Jacinda Ardern, which I find really worrying and depressing, because I think um, one of the consequences of COVID-19 is that it, I think it will re-empower 
the kind of technocratic section of the political class. And it could have a, ne a negative impact on, on the populist moment, which I think has been a very important moment, both, you know, Brexit, Trump, um, the victory of Scott Morrison to a certain extent certainly took everyone by surprise in Australia. Uh, various other political events across Europe. There has been uh, uh, lots of examples of ordinary people um, making a radical change to how politics is conducted. And I think one of the negative impacts of COVID-19 is that it will um, re boost the claims of the expert class that they are really the only people who can be trusted to govern society. And I think we might see the revenge of the technocrats and uh, Jacinda Ardern's victory has given, has put blood in their nostrils. And, and if Biden wins as well, I think we will definitely see an, a really important political turning point. Yeah, I think we should just put a marker down and say, because people end up watching and listening to these um, over a long time that we are talking, what, end of October? Uh, we're, we're awaiting the uh, US election next week, I think, and um, so we don't know the results of that. Uh, uh, I don't think we're going to make a prediction, are we, Brendan? Are you brave enough to predict it at this stage? Uh, I, I think Biden's going to win, but I would not want to put any money on it because, as we know, politics at the moment is unpredictable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Peter Robinson uh, from... The Hoover Institute was telling me, he said, well, I put that question to him, he said, it's a heart and a head problem. <laughs> Your heart wants to say. Um, but yeah, that's where we are. Um, what I think is interesting about the lockdown is it has become a tool largely of left-leaning governments. I mean, there are exceptions to that. We might think that the, the Johnson government in Britain has been a little too heavy-handed, but, but if you look around the world, there's a clear pattern, right? New Zealand, state of Victoria in Australia, Labour state, heavy lockdowns. Uh, places like California, heavy lockdown, but Florida, not so much. Republican governor who, who believes strongly in, in business. So, you know, you've got the situation where is it, is it Disney? I don't know the difference between Disney World and the other one, but the one in, in Miami is open, or the one in, in Florida is open, the one in California is closed. This, I think, reflects a. Um, it, it, there's something behind this, and, the, and it's the ideology that the state knows best, that the state can control everything from the top down. Uh, it's a Soviet style model. And what we've seen is a repeat of what we saw in Germany in, in the late 20th century that uh, actually, when you try that, you divide a country up into a, a top down command economy and then a, a bottom up liberal free market. You know which one's going to triumph, uh, and that's what's happened here. I think that, that, that a more liberal approach, in which people voluntarily commit to helping their fellow men and women, and the free market's allowed to come in and do things like track and trace, works a lot more effectively. Delivers services. Is that a fair observation? Yeah. Do you think? Does that match what you see there? Yeah, that is a fair observation. I mean, as you say, the the outlier in in a lot of this is is Boris Johnson's government, which. I just think has made some really bad decisions over the past six months. And it's done so under extraordinary pressure from the media elites in Britain who went absolutely berserk in March and April. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I had to stop watching the TV news. It was so bad. It was just, it would just zap the life from you. Make, you know, it was so depressing to watch uh, their, their constantly fearful coverage. 
Um, and they put a lot of pressure on Boris to lock down, which is something he didn't initially want to do. And so did the Labour Party and so did the left. Um, so Boris is a bit of an outlier because he went along with this against his better instincts, I think. He was initially interested in taking much more of a Swedish route and he ended up taking an Italian route of, of a pretty severe national lockdown. Um, so, but you're right, across the board, it has been kind of laborish governments who've been more keen on the authoritarian measures, more keen on the lockdown. And I think it's a, that's because it's a natural fit for them. You know, over the past few decades, so social democracy has been in crisis. It's been in crisis primarily because it is now so removed from ordinary people. We know this from the Australian Labour Party, the British Labour Party, various parties in Europe, particularly in Germany, where the Social Democrat Party has had its worst election results since the Second World War. Um, and all these parties are increasingly rem removed from ordinary people, from working people. They've become colonized by the kind of graduate classes and the well-educated middle classes. Uh, you know, one of the great ironies of the Labour Party in Britain under Jeremy Corbyn is that the membership became even more middle class than it had been under Tony Blair. And, you know, Tony Blair was seen as this great turning point who made Labour from a working class party in, into a middle class party. Corbyn pushed that even further. And so these parties are now run by experts and incredibly well-educated people and people of a bureaucratic mindset. They're not run by the kind of people who used to run them 50 or 60 or 70 years ago. They, they're run by people who think they have to, in a very patrician way, look after ordinary people because, you know, they're a bit feckless, they're not very intelligent, they're a bit overweight, they're a bit unhealthy. You know, they have these kinds of prejudices and they've had them for a long time. And what's happened in COVID-19 in this crisis is that all of those prejudices have come to fruition and they've seen locking down the population, stripping them of all their liberties, preventing them from going outside in some situations. They've seen that as a perfectly logical, perfectly good way to manage the masses. So I think um, all of their prejudices are coming out, but what they don't realize, I think, or maybe they do and they don't care, is that they are storing up so many problems for the future. Uh, economic problems, social problems, mental health problems, all of their policies are going to have a devastating impact. And there will be payback for that at some point. Mm. A lot of this isn't, isn't new, this, this sort of condescending attitude to the working class. George Orwell writes about this in the 1930s, yeah. and it goes back much further than that, of course. But I think what you have makes it extra edgy in my view is that, that there's that, that there's a refusal to give any uh, honor to the wisdom that's come before them they just dismiss every previous way of doing anything in fact worse than dismiss it they condemn it and so they come with no background no context it makes it particularly dangerous I think doesn't it that they're doing this with no historical knowledge or reference point yeah th these are these are year zero people. We know that because halfway through the COVID crisis, they all, you know, they all supported that moment of year zero hysteria when people were tearing down statues and trying to rewrite history and trying to decolonize the curriculum in schools and universities to, you know, basically paint the past 
as one horrible event after another. These are people who, and you know, the problem with the year zero mentality is that it's, it's staggeringly arrogant because what it says is everyone who came before me was wrong. Everyone who came before me was racist and evil. And it's down to my generation to cleanse the past and correct the populace. And I think that really has been the mentality of these people for quite a while. And what COVID-19 has done has allowed them to implement this stuff in a very extreme way. Um, and I think you're right. Not only do they see, they, they look at the past and wisdom and precedent as things to be just ridden over roughshod, but they also have no regard whatsoever for the wisdom of ordinary people. And th their failure to engage ordinary people in a discussion about how to deal with COVID, their unwillingness to trust communities to take initiative themselves to protect themselves from virus, which is what Sweden largely allowed people to do, their unwillingness to do those things, I think, has been catastrophic. So they have this disdain for the wisdom of past generations. They have this utter disregard for ordinary people's ability to negotiate risk and to determine the best way to protect themselves and their communities from outside threats. They have no regard for any of that. And so it's just this constant top-down authoritarian measures, which um, they think, you know, if you look at Jacinda Ardern again, she is celebrated as this wonderful success story because she basically closed New Zealand's borders, created a situation where New Zealand you know, can never really open up to the world again if it wants to stay free from COVID. And the, the events in New Zealand will have a bad economic impact as well. And yet she is being celebrated even by Remainers in the UK who are supposed to be the open borders lobby. So their authoritarian instincts have just exploded into public view. And I think much more, many more people can now see that. Let's look at what's happening on the left and this divide. You can see it starkly in the United States, of course, in the Democrat Party, uh, which has now got a very strong, powerful and cashed up um, new left element to it, uh, you know, represented by, I guess, the, the, vice pre the candidate for vice president versus the candidate for president. You've got this divide. People are talking about woke versus Woodstock on the left. They're, they're, this is an inevitable point at which there was going to be a clash and, and, the, and the woke generation, those, the, those who come imbibed in, in, in uh, campus culture are coming out now challenging the old left. It's a clash. Uh, if you see it in that to those terms, and you could look, the same's true in Britain, right? You could talk about the Labour Party there and to some extent the Labour Party here. But if you see it in those terms, there's an inevitability about it, isn't there, that the, the campus culture, the woke culture, will become the dominant culture on the left if it's not already. I, I think that's right. I, and I think it's, it's heading very much in that direction because the older left, the left that was interested in, in the economy and, and living conditions, is on the defensive or has, has just been defeated, I think, by this, this emergent woke left and I think the woke left is a real problem and I've always thought that at some point it would explode from campuses and spread onto the streets and that's exactly what's happened this year. If you look at the footage for example of, of Black Lives Matter protesters in Washington DC screaming in the faces of, of diners who are just trying to eat a meal or going into suburban areas and, and screaming wake up mother effers. You know this is the extremity of, of campus culture becoming 
a reality in, in daily life, in, in public life. And it, it feels very destabilizing and, and quite threatening and, and almost neo-Maoist, you know, these kind of mm. these woke guards taking to the streets to smash down statues, um, correct people's thought, attack people who have wrong think. It's all very reminiscent of China under Mao, the Cultural Revolution. And um, I think a cultural revolution is taking place. I think the, the old left is being wiped aside by this new woke left who are pretty ruthless and incredibly divisive, uh, very destructive, obsessed with race, obsessed with identity, obsessed with these incredibly divisive ideas, um, very different to the left of the past, which was which used to talk about the unifying nature of class, people coming together despite their differences in order to struggle for better pay or conditions or whatever it might have been. You know, the, the left used to speak in the language of unity and e the economy, now it speaks very much in the language of identity and virtue signaling, narcissism, nothing to do with um, tangibly improving people's lives. So the left is changing enormously. And I think this new woke left uh, has been victorious. I thought the, the events at the New York Times this year actually really summed that up and were, were probably more important than people realized where you had the opinion editor who, who was effectively sacked um, because he published an opinion piece by a senator who said that Trump should send the army in to quell the Black Lives Matter protesters. Now, at the time he wrote that piece for the New York Times, that was a position that had um, widespread public support in the US. And what happened is that all the new young woke reporters and writers at the New York Times staged a rebellion. They went online and said that this column hurt them, made them feel unsafe. This is the language of, of the campus hysterics. And they were successful. He was pushed aside. And the new opinion editor who took over said, listen, anyone at the New York Times who feels pain when they read something, come to me and we'll sort it out. So even the New York Times, the, that august liberal institution, the kind of the high point of American liberalism and, and kind of old left American politics has been taken over and colonized by these new people who are incredibly intolerant of diversity of thought and who want to force everyone to think in the same way they do. The conquering of the New York Times in 2020, I think, will be a very significant event. Yeah, but let's, let's get this in proportion. When we say, and you use the word that they've been triumphant, only triumphant on the left, right? I mean, you can see in, in the United States right now a very fiercely fought election campaign that at this stage, uh, you know, as we said earlier, it would be a brave person who bet their house on it. So it, the, the contest is still there. But I think what's happening is on the right, we've got this sort of fatalism, the end of the world. We've got the same sort of you know, catastrophism built into our psyche is, is sometimes on the left because their catastrophe is COVID or climate change. Our catastrophe is Joe Biden as president. You know, he, he, we've got to get out of this mindset, haven't we? And just say, no, no, this is the contest of ideas. The, the, the battle is there to be won. We've just got to go out and make sound, principled, sensible, understandable arguments against it. And we know that the majority of people will respond. Yeah, I think that one of the great contradictions of our time is that um, public institutions seem to be dominated by these kind of woke elites who, who hold very eccentric views and very intolerant views. But 
um, political sentiment in the public at large is not really of that ilk at all. You know, we, people voted for Boris Johnson, people voted for Trump, people voted for Morrison, people in Europe are voting for parties which run incredibly counter to the new orthodoxies of political correctness. So this is the real tension. The tension is between these woke elites who represent a very narrow section of society and public opinion, which is rational and sensible, although public opinion, I think, has taken a real beating this year because of the COVID crisis. So that's the tension. But I always think about the 1980s, and I think you and I have discussed this before, Nick. Um, the, the, the very strange thing about the 1980s is that Western politics was dominated by Thatcher and Reagan. So it was dominated by that kind of right-wing pushback against the excesses of the 1960s and um, that sense of relativism and a pushback against consensus politics and a kind of resurgent right who wanted to establish uh, traditional ideals and um, capitalist ideals and so on. But at the exact same time that those people were electorally in power, we saw the institutionalization of political correctness, the institutionalization of, of the new feminism, the idea that men and women need to be policed and, and men are bad and the patriarchy is bad, the institutionalization of environmentalism, which came went on to play an incredibly important role in terms of global governance and, and correcting people's thoughts and lowering people's horizons. So it's very interesting that even as... Um, the right enjoyed electoral success in the 80s, that kind of woke left in its early days was really taking power in the institutions. And I think something similar is happening now uh, in terms of the electoral successes on the side of, of populists, but the woke left is really taking over, not taking over, but massively influencing institutions. So in the UK this year, we've had institutions like the British Museum, the Natural History Museum, you know, the, the, the bodies of the Enlightenment in this country, absolutely core to the cultural power of this country. They've been falling over themselves to remove offensive exhibits. The Natural History Museum is talking about removing any reference to Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin, arguably Charles the most... Darwin? The most you're, you're kidding me. Right, <laughs> arguably the most important scientific mind of all time. I mean, his influence on the world just cannot be overstated. And But because he went on, because some of his uh, trips over broad to investigate uh, nature, because they were uh, done on, on colonial ships, therefore he's a bad person, he's a racist person, he must be cancelled. So uh, the fact that such serious institutions are going along with the eccentric worldview of that kind of narrow political section of society, that kind of thing I find very worrying. And I'm concerned that under the surface of political life, which at the moment is, is actually quite healthy and there's a lot of contest, I think under the surface of that, we are witnessing the institutionalization of some pretty backward views. You've uh, you provided the segue for me. I wanted to get on and talk about science, Charles Darwin. Uh, this was the moment, COVID was the moment when Western science scientific method could have really redeemed itself you know it's been in a little bit of trouble quite a bit of trouble uh, i don't know if you've read new book by stuart ritchie science fictions where he talks about the amount of fraud outright fraud that had crept into science uh, it was in a bad way it could have redeemed itself by coming scientists getting together saying rising to support the human race through this crisis we're going to get together we're going to put aside all our differences and just 
work out how to work our way through this virus. But actually the very opposite has occurred. People talk sometimes accuse people like you and I of discrediting the science. I think the science is doing a very good job of discrediting itself at the moment. You know, look, the World Health Organization, of course, very early on says, uh, you know, face masks are, are useless. Other bodies say they're useless, even dangerous. But now we've got a Danish study of 6,000 people that shows that face masks don't make any material difference to the spread of COVID-19. But none of the mainstream journals, The Lancet, any of those will even publish it. Science has just got in a very, very bad way very quickly, hasn't it? It has, yes, it has. It's, it's really the, the exhaustion of science or, or, or the, the, the self-corruption of science, I think, has become very clear this year in, in a very worrying way. Um, I think it's been a long time coming. I think the, the real problem we've had over recent years has been the tendency of politicians to rely on science or to rely on what they refer to as expertise to push forward certain policies. You know, um, evidence-led politics, that was the great rallying cry of the past few years, past few decades, which really spoke to the way in which politics had become the dominion of the so-called expert classes, which had a very diminishing impact on democracy and the idea that uh, you know, the, the country should be governed by the interests and the desires of the people rather than by the wisdom of so-called experts. So on many issues, you know, how to raise children, the issue of climate change, many of these kinds of issues, governments constantly lent on science and said, well, we're going to do what the science, the science tells us to do. And that has a corrupting impact on politics because politics, as I say, becomes you know, slowly but surely less democratic and, and more dominated by the kind of graduate classes. And it has a very bad impact on science as well, because it seems inevitable to me that if science is continually called upon to justify political policy and, and, and moral agendas, then it will inevitably become corrupted by that process. You will see the, the emergence of science that bends itself towards particular agendas or which, uh, you know, if, science, if scientists know that there is a particular thing a government wants to hear in order to pursue a certain policy, they may well end up providing what the government wants to hear. So the falsifiability of science was undermined, the open-ended nature of science was undermined, and of course we had the perverse situation where science was treated almost as a, a gospel in relation to environmentalism, and anyone who questioned the science was uh, basically a heretic or a denier who had to be cast out. So it's been a long time coming, and I think what we have this year is really the end point or, or, or the latest logical end point to um, the use of science to political ends and the over-reliance on science. And I think one of the reasons that the woke elites and the old political establishment, I think one of the reasons they loathe Donald Trump so much is that he, he very explicitly calls into question the authority of experts. Now, sometimes he does that in a crude way that's unquestionable. Sometimes he does it in a, a, a way that's not particularly useful. But I think one of the most important functions he plays in political life at the moment is to call into question the governance, uh, the government governance by expertise. And that's one reason he is seen as such an extraordinary threat to the status quo as it existed before 2016. I think after this year, it's possible that many more people will start calling into question the role of experts and the right of experts to determine how ordinary people should live.
Believe me, Brendan, I would like to trust the experts. It would save a lot of time, right? I mean, it would save me having to delve into endless references online just to get to the truth of what COVID-19 is about, if I could just get the story straight from them. But we haven't been getting that. You know, I mean, I, I don't know whether masks work or not. I mean, it's not my area of expertise. But if you can't publish what seems to be an authoritative paper making one case and then throw it up for debate... You know, it's the old John Stuart Mill thing, isn't it? Testing truth, testing error against truth. We don't, do, how are we ever going to get to the truth? Something we can trust. That's right. And um, that's why it needs to be an open-ended process. And, the, you know, whenever you call into question the rule of experts, of course, everyone says, oh, you're a philistine, you're an idiot, you, you, you know, you, you don't trust science, you're anti-science, you're anti-enlightenment. That's not the case at all. I think science and expertise play an incredibly important role in society in particular areas. If, if I get ill, I want to be treated by a doctor. I don't want to be treated by the man on the street who's never studied medicine. So we all value expertise. We all value scientific insight and scientific. We could do more of that. We could do with more of that rather than with political science. The problem is when expertise and science are then mixed with politics. And the reason that's a problem is because um, democracy, whether people like it or not, and it's become clear over the past four years that many people don't like it, democracy is ruled by the people. Democracy is a process which engages the views and passions and interests of everyone in society. Everyone has an equal say. Um, you know, the, 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 the woman who cleans um, the offices of the Royal Society has as much right to determine the future of the country on, on polling day as the incredibly clever scientists who work at the Royal Society. That's how democracy works. And in my view, that's an incredibly good thing. It brings people into an intimate relationship with society. It gives them power. It makes them think of themselves and their, the world around them in a very different way. It makes them possibly engage with ideas, take part in debate, and therefore we need freedom of speech. My view is that democracy is, is the best political idea mankind has ever had. And over the past few years, however, that's come to be undermined by the, uh, the fetishization of expertise. And I think what we need is a world in which expertise is, is, a, is a discrete pursuit, a very important one, but a discrete pursuit, Whereas politics and morality and the question of the future ought to be hugely wide-ranging debates involving all people. And so with the COVID crisis, the way I see it, what experts should be doing is carrying on studying the virus, examining it, coming up with a vaccine, thinking about masks, telling the truth about masks. They should be doing all of that. But even as they're doing that, the, the huge moral question of how society should function in the face of a viral threat. That has to be a democratic debate. That has to be a debate about what people need. And that has to be a debate about balancing the threat posed by COVID-19 with all the dangers that have been unleashed by the lockdown. So that kind of discussion hasn't taken place in a real way, which I think is really problematic. And instead, we're reverting to a pre-2016 world in which the experts were treated almost as gods who could tell us what to do. They can't tell us what to do. They can tell us what this virus is like, but they can't tell us how our societies and our communities should respond to it. We began talking about this crisis um, a long way back at the start of the year. We've continued to touch base every now and then, and this crisis morphs 
from a medical crisis to an economic crisis to now a cultural crisis, a strategic crisis. But I think since we spoke last, one thing that's coming to the fore very much is the crisis in social media, uh, that these platforms, uh, which we thought would be there for free and open discussion, turn out to be some of the most heavily censored forums for discussion we have. What are we going to do about it? <laughs> what can well, we do about it? you know, I was... I was just talk. I've been talking to some friends about this over the past few days, particularly following the extraordinary situation where Twitter prevented people from sharing the New York Post story about Hunter Biden and 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 a laptop from hell, as Donald Trump rather wittily called it. Now, lots of people say that the laptop story is not true, that there, it can't can't be verified, et cetera, et cetera. Fine, whatever. Let us make up our own minds on that. But when you have vast corporations using their power to prevent people from sharing stories published in one of the oldest, most continually published newspapers in America, then we have a problem. And in fact, Twitter went even further. It locked the New York Post staff out of their Twitter account until they agreed to delete, I think, five or six tweets. This is, um, I keep thinking, where's the left? Where is the left when uh, the capitalist classes of Silicon Valley are throwing their weight around to such an extraordinary degree that they are preventing a newspaper from communicating with its readers on the internet? This is it's a really staggering state of affairs. And I think we're going to see more of this. And, and my fear is that neither the left nor, nor the libertarian right is, is well equipped politically for this new culture of censorship, because on the left, many on the left support it because they're very censorious anyway. And they love the fact that feminists who question transgenderism can be banned from Twitter. Um, So-called racists can be banned from Twitter. They, they cheer whenever this happens. So they love it. Um, the libertarian right is not well equipped because I, I, I think they have a tendency to fetishize property rights or at least they elevate property rights too highly, in my view, above the freedom of speech. So they will often respond to instances like this by saying, well, you know, these are private companies, they can do what they want. I'm afraid that's not good enough. It, it, it's not good enough in a moment, in a time in which these private companies play such an extraordinary, almost monopolistic role in public debate. And when they play that kind of extraordinary role in public debate, there should be huge pressure on them to respect the freedom of speech of everyone, whatever their political views might be. So the, the, the way in which Silicon Valley, the mask has been ripped off in essence over the past few weeks and, and over this past year. And Silicon Valley has very explicitly become a tool of officialdom. And I think that's a really worrying development. Yeah, oh, well, lots to talk about there too. But look, Brendan, um, just finally, do you feel optimistic about Britain right now and how well it's going to come out of this recession? Um, right now, probably not. But I think there is a huge amount of political and moral resources in this country. There always has been. And the thing that gives me some optimism is, of course, that we're still living in the Brexit moment. And the Brexit moment was a demand to take back control. That's what we all voted for in 2016. Take back democratic control, give people more power, give people more say. I think that's an incredibly positive ideal. It's been dealt a real body blow this year because, as I said earlier, 
we feel very out of control now of our of the most basic elements of our lives but that desire is still there and i think that's really the clash that we have at the moment the clash is between ordinary people who want more sovereignty you know individual sovereignty community sovereignty the right to make serious decisions about the world they live in against a, a, a political class, particularly the left-leaning political class, which thinks that it should have the control and that bureaucrats and experts know better and that it should tell us what to do. That was the clash in 2016. I think it's still the clash now. And I think one exciting thing about 2021 is that I think that clash is gonna become even more apparent and we'll have lots of debates about who should govern society and, who's, and in whose interests it should be governed. Well, here's, here's a prediction. I'll make a firm prediction that whatever nonsense the left throws up in 2021, Brendan O'Neill and Spiked will be out there fighting it. So thank you for... Uh, if Spiked just gets better and better, your podcasts are going off. Uh, you know, you, uh, thank you for everything you do there. And look, most of all, thank you for joining us today on Water Cooler. Thanks a lot, Nick. You've been listening to the Menzies Research Centre podcast from Sydney, Australia. If you'd like to join the growing number of people who are supporting our work, you can do so by going online and becoming a subscriber from just $10 a month. MenziesRC.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening.